0: Hello, my Rebels. A very special show today, a one-on-one with Conrad Black, a man who knew the Queen, spent a lot of time over in the UK, not just as a press baron, but getting to know the political and, well, constitutional leaders of that country. He'll tell us about Queen Elizabeth and her successor, King Charles. That's all ahead. But first, let me invite you to go to rebelnewsplus.com and subscribe to the video version of this podcast. It's only eight bucks a month. You get my show every weekday. That's 16, no, that's 20 shows a month, come to think of it, plus four weekly podcasts. That's 36 episodes a month just for eight bucks. Do it because it's a great deal, but also do it because we don't get any money from the government. So we rely on your subscriptions. Go to rebelnewsplus.com. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, the Queen is dead. Long live the King, a one-on-one with Conrad Black on the passing of the torch. It's September 9th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. for Shame on you, you censorious thug! Well, who better to talk about Queen Elizabeth and her successor, King Charles III, than our friend conrad black a man who has spent much of his career and life and political life in the united kingdom he joins us now great to see you again
1: thanks for having me Ezra. what a
0: momentous day yes. it's, it's like you wake up every day of your life and there's a mountain out there and then one day the mountain's gone and you realize it wasn't a mountain it was a woman made of flesh and bone she lived in 96 but she's gone, there is there is a feeling of loss, like a family member
2: gone.
1: I, I agree, I think there are scores of millions of people, and I'm one of them who didn't realize until until she died what a fixture she was in our lives, you know? Yeah. I mean, not that I knew her especially well or had seen her in recent years, That that's not my point, it's just she, she was a fixture in the public life of the world and particularly of the countries she had an association with, like this one.
0: You know, in an era of excess of Kim Kardashian of Meghan Markle, there she was, uh, a symbol of restraint and modesty. And if it's possible for a queen to be humble, I would say she she did it. I mean, certain things are impossible for a queen to be. You can't no. be you can't be cheap as a queen. But she wasn't lavish, no. beyond you know what a queen must be.
1: Well, she used the the instances of the British monarchy, that, that had been translated down to her over centuries as they should be used. But she never implied or indeed personally embraced individual extravagance. So, yes, there were the crown jewels and the royal collection and the palaces and so on. But but she herself, as the country could detect, lived quite modestly. She liked driving her own Range Rover on her property with her corgis. And she didn't dress up if she wasn't expected to for a state occasion. And and she. Uh, You're right that she managed to play it right down the center. She was not commonplace. She was the queen, but she was never pompous, never ceremonious. She had a good sense of humor, easy smile, but never frivolous or silly. Mm. Uh, and, and, And she managed this for 70 years without a single slip. That is the most amazing thing. Not once in 70 years did she embarrass or annoy Uh, anyone uh, of the scores of millions of people that she served.
0: Yeah. You know, um, there are people who were born into wealth or high station, and it can drive them mad. I mean, I think of Hunter Biden. Maybe that's not a fair comparison, but his father was vice president. He had access to power and money and fame, and he went the wrong way. Here is a woman who, as you point out, in 70 years of service, it didn't get to her. She didn't become angry or or frustrated she didn't seem like she felt trapped like i can only imagine the temptations of that office of how Mm. it would transform you she seemed genuine right to the end and maybe she was a very good actor about it but she never seemed bored or condescending Mm. never condescending
1: she may well have been bored at times but she disguised that that was her absolutely implacable sense of duty which to be fair she got from her parents i mean her father never wished to be king, never expected to be king. Was pressed into the office when the powers that be in that country determined that his brother was not an appropriate person to be king. Uh, but but he served and was a, a beloved king because he was completely selfless, and and he died early because of the burdens of that office in wartime and so on. And uh, and I, I and the the queen inherited that. And and I I think it's fair to say that. She was taken for granted, not disregarded, but taken for granted without particular enthusiasm for much of her reign. Respected, well liked, but but not not with a devoted or or, or um, what should I say, uh, uh, adul- adulatory following. But since the death of Diana and of the Queen Mother, she's steadily become, I think, a something to which the British public and, to some extent, other parts of the Commonwealth have become addicted to. And she became such an immense presence and her her longevity created a kind of cumulative respect. It's like a denim bursting when she dies. Everyone, everyone is agreed that that she was really a a splendid example of public service.
0: I think she was slightly too young to be part of what has been called the greatest generation. but she was alive and awake to the second world War.
1: she got the end of it she was yeah. uh, as you know a mechanic in the home guard in the last year of the war right. uh, it, i might i just want to say the gra- the greatest generation was as described that it was because it had the greatest leaders it was really because of the leadership of roosevelt and churchill and the military chiefs macarthur and eisenhower and montgomery and people like this that you know we got through the depression won the greatest just war in history with in the West, relatively modest casualties given the size of the war. And uh, and then and then there was a tremendous prosperity after the war. And and um, uh, but, but the, the leaders led and the people followed. And we had, you know, it, as a, it was, a, it was a, the best generation in all respects at the at the grassroots and at the time.
0: It's a good point. And she herself was a leader, even though she was a young leader. Yes, I only learned from Boris Johnson's wonderful <laughs> eulogy which we'll play in a minute. Very fine. Um, that When she was 14, she gave a message to other 14, other young people yes. that we will get yes. through this. And then the famous pictures of her being a mechanic. I mean, the idea of a princess getting mucky with oil and grease. And, and she what, still, know, sure.
1: I mean, right up to last week, she could still repair a car, you know, which yeah. I, I couldn't do. I yeah. don't know if you could. <laughs> and, and I think
0: that gave her an affection for soldiers and the, yeah. the British Army forever. Look, she, she had it from when
1: her father became the king. And if you look at the news film of her of accompanying her parents in the Naval Review at Spithead, just outside Southampton, uh, in 1937 with the then Lord Mountbatten, uh, and she, he would point out to her, uh, you know, the Battleship Texas representing the U.S. and the Graf Spee representing the Germans and, and so on. And and uh, you, you could see that she was taking it all in. Yeah. And... and, and uh, She had this wonderful combination of being serious without being uh, either either pompous or grim, you know. Mm -hmm. So she she took it all in, but but in a in an amicable way.
0: Yeah. You know, there was a sense of humor that she had. And of course, her late husband had a wonderful sense of humor that was politically incorrect sometimes. I want to play for you a short clip that I just saw yesterday on British TV. Uh, I mean, it's almost too much to believe that an American tourist was in Scotland and encountered her and, and someone else and said, oh, do you, oh, you're from around here. Have you ever met the Queen? Let me just play for you sure. this clip. It's too fu- I I want to believe this is true. It's almost too much to believe this isn't true, but I can believe it. Here, take a quick look at this.
2: And one of the picnics I went out with her, we had a lovely picnic and a lovely chat, and then we went for a little walk, just the two of us. And normally, on these picnic sites, you you meet nobody, but there was two hikers coming towards us and the Queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped they hadn't recognised the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming and sure enough, he said to her Majesty, and where do you live? (laughs) And she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> and he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thinking. He said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen.
3: I love and it. as quick
2: as a flash, she says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy said to me, well, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes round, puts his arm around my shoulder and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen and says, <laughs> can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> anyway, we swapped places and I took a picture of them with the Queen and we never let on and we waved goodbye. And then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America. <laughs> and hopefully someone tells him who I am.
0: She had a sense of humor. And I mean, you could see that her, her butler or aide, whoever that was, said, well, she's cantankerous, but has a sense of humor. I think I think you have to. And I, I don't think that she was self. There's a kind of humor that everyone loves, self, self-deprecating humor. Yeah. I don't think a queen can or should be self-deprecating because to deprecate herself would be to de- deprecate her personification of the state, so I don't yeah. think a queen can m- mock herself in well, the same it, it's way. It's
1: certainly more complicated. Yeah, yeah.
0: but but <clears throat> I I think that she managed to be as funny as a queen it should should ever be, and I think no, her husband she, filled the gaps.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, and I agree. I, I mean, I I was asked a few things uh, uh, the, the day she died, to reminiscences. No, the one example I gave of that if I May was when I I was the Honorary colonel of the governor general's foot guards in the late nineties. And the queen was in Canada and she was giving us a, re- you know, a, a, a renewal of colors. You so it was a regimental event. It was, a, it was, a, the temperature was 99 degrees Fahrenheit in Ottawa. And, um, the, the, the uniform I had was for winter events, you know, and and Canadian military uniforms aren't very stylish at the best of times. And, and, um, So there I was, doing my best not to perspire, and she said, I'm not used to seeing you dressed like this. I used to see her in London from time to time, just in the normal course, you know. And so I I thought of uh, when Elvis Presley met President Nixon and he was wearing a brown satin suit and Mr. Nixon said, you're rather flamboyantly dressed so I took Elvis's line and I said well your majesty, you dress for your job and I dress for mine. <laughs> he said, ah, but I have a better costumer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you know she's, she was quick with the quip I mean, um, she certainly was. Well, you know, I mentioned Boris Johnson's eulogy and Boris Johnson has his flaws, but the man has a way with words. And, oh, yeah. Uh,
1: and then he was shabbily treated and he'll be back to you. Not necessarily as prime minister, but he'll be back as a force in the politics. Of well, France. I
0: mean, he's clearly uh, still a young, young man yeah, sure. in politics. And I think he rose to the occasion yesterday. I want to play. And please stay with me for eight minutes. This is an eight minute clip and I, I, I do want to play it now. And I want you to stick with it, and I, that won't be hard for you to do. It, it'll get your attention in the first 30 seconds. Watch this eight-minute clip, and then when we come back, I'm going to ask Conrad Black about the new king. It's still not even, I'm not used to saying that, you know, all these things like the Court of King's Bench. Yep, in yep, Canada, right. we call it the
1: Court of Queen's And we go Bench. back to singing God Save the King. Yeah, yep.
0: it's going to take a while to get used to that. Uh, so watch this wonderful Speech in the House of Commons by Boris Johnson. And don't you go away. Come right back here. Take a look.
4: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I hope the House will not mind if I begin with a personal confession. A few months ago, the BBC came to see me to talk about Her Majesty the Queen, and we sat down and the cameras started rolling, and they requested that I should talk about her in the past tense. And I'm afraid I simply choked up and I couldn't go on. I'm really not easily moved to tears but I was so overcome with sadness that I had to ask them to go away. And I know that today there are countless people in this country and around the world who have experienced the same sudden access of unexpected emotion. And I think millions of us are trying to understand why we are feeling this deep and personal and almost familial sense of loss. Perhaps it's partly that she's always been there, a changeless human reference point in British life, the person who, all the surveys say, appears most often in our dreams, so unvarying in her pole star radiance that we have perhaps been lulled into thinking that she might be in some way eternal. But I think our shock is keener today because we are coming to understand in her death the full magnitude of what she did for us all. And think of what we asked that 25-year-old woman all those years ago. To be the person so globally trusted that her image should be on every unit of our currency, every postage stamp, the person in whose name all justice is dispensed in this country, every law passed, to whom every minister of the Crown swears allegiance and for whom every member of our armed services is pledged, if necessary, to lay down their lives. Think what we asked of her in that moment, not just to be the living embodiment in in her DNA of the history and continuity and unity of this country, but to be the figurehead of our entire system, the keystone in the vast arch of the British state, a role that only she could fulfil because, in the brilliant and durable bargain of the constitutional monarchy, only she could be trusted to be above any party political or commercial interest and to incarnate, impartially, the very concept and essence of the nation. Think what we asked of her and think what she gave. She showed the world not just how to reign over a people, she showed the world how to give, how to love and how to serve. And as we look back at that vast arc of service, its sheer duration, is almost impossible to take in. She was the last living person in British public life to have served in uniform in the Second World War. She was the first female member of the royal family in a 1,000 years to serve full-time in the armed forces, and that impulse to do her duty carried her right through into her 10th decade to the very moment in Balmoral As my right Honourable Fenton said, only three days ago, when she saw off her 14th Prime Minister and welcomed her 15th, and I can tell you, in that audience, she was as radiant and as knowledgeable and as fascinated by politics as ever I can remember, and as wise in her advice as anyone I know, if not wiser. And over that extraordinary span of public service, with her naturally retentive and inquiring mind, I think, and doubtless many of the 15 would agree, that she became the greatest statesman and diplomat of all. And she knew instinctively how to cheer up the nation, how to lead a celebration. I remember her innocent joy more than ten years ago after the opening ceremony of the London Olympics, when I told her that the leader of a friendly Middle Eastern country seemed actually to believe that she had jumped out of a helicopter (laughs) in a pink dress and parachuted into the stadium. and I remember her equal pleasure on being told just a few weeks ago that she had been a smash hit in her performance with Paddington Bear and, perhaps more importantly, she knew how to keep us going when times were toughest. In 1940, when this country and this democracy faced the real possibility of extinction, she gave a broadcast, aged only 14, that was intended to reassure the children of Britain. She said then, we know, every one of us, that in the end all We'll be well. She was right. And she was right again in the darkest days of the COVID pandemic when she came on our screens and told us that we would meet again. And we did. And I know I speak for other Prime Ministers, when I say ex-Prime Ministers, when I say that she helped to comfort and guide us as well as the nation because she had the patience and the sense of history to see that troubles come and go, and that disasters are seldom as bad as they seem, and it was that indomitability, that humor, that work ethic and that sense of history, which together made her Elizabeth the Great. And when I call her that, I should add one, Elizabeth the Great. I should add one final quality, of course, which was her humility, her single bar electric fire. Tupperware using (laughs) refusal to be grand. And unlike us politicians, with our outriders and our armour-plated convoys, I can tell you as a direct eyewitness that she drove herself in her own car with no detectives and no bodyguard, bouncing at alarming speed (laughs) over the Scottish landscape to the total amazement of the Ramblers and the Tourists we encountered and it is that indomitable spirit with which she created the modern constitutional monarchy, an institution so strong and so happy and so well understood not just in this country but in the Commonwealth and around the world that the succession has already seamlessly taken place and I believe she would regard it as her own highest achievement that her son, Charles III, will clearly and amply follow her own extraordinary standards of duty and service. And the fact that today we can say with such confidence, God save the King, is a tribute to him, but above all to Elizabeth the Great, who worked so hard for the good of her country not just now, but for generations to come. That is why we mourn her so deeply. And it is in the depths of our grief that we understand why we loved her so much.
0: Well, you know what? He nailed it. And uh, it was touching. And Elizabeth the Great, I think it's true. I mean, she wasn't a conqueror, really. She was not in the age of conquering. But I I think she was everything she should have been. A diplomat, an, an encourager... Um, in tough times, she she felt like a place of solace. I don't know. I I can't believe I'm I'm a little bit sentimental about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just for the bygone era. She represents a, a wonderful century uh, that's gone.
1: Look, when a person of that superlative quality of, of competence and dutifulness goes after such a long time, you know, you're not going to replace her easily. So it's quite natural yeah. to feel the nostalgia. So, uh, you look, let me just say one thing on a comparative basis. Uh, she made a tremendous effort with the Commonwealth. I mean, she's really been the first queen of the Commonwealth. The, the, her father was there briefly, and then he died prematurely, uh, just uh, five years after the independence of India. And um, it, look, the Commonwealth, as we all know, has its shortcomings. But it does sort of work, and and the advanced countries within the Commonwealth are in general, quite helpful to the developing countries. And, you know, there are problems at times, but in general, it, it it coheres and it achieves something in the world. And I don't want to be unkind, but if you compare that to the former empires of the other European colonial powers, it, it shows what an achievement the Queen has had because she really has made the Commonwealth the positive force that it is. That's a great I point. I mean, the, the the French have kept it together a little bit, but just by sending a thousand paratroopers here and there to prevent complete yeah. disorder. And but the Portuguese, the Dutch, yeah. uh, the Spanish—it's a shambles. Yeah. A, and and there's no relationship at all with the parent, the former parent country. Yeah. I mean, it, she has done that, and and it is an achievement.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Well, let's talk about the new king, and and uh it'll take me it's like when you w- when the new year you sign your new checks are you saying 2022 yeah. or 2023 yeah. except for it's 96 years yeah. of saying queen so now we say king again and this isn't the day to be petty or, or political no. um i hope he rises to the right, Look, i, think, I think he
1: comes in with, on a tremendous wave of goodwill uh, it, it, normally, when you get a person coming into an office, whether it's a new prime minister or president or monarch, whatever it is, uh, it, 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 people are disposed as they should be to hope for the best, give him or her a chance, yeah. you know, and just hope it goes well. Uh, and I think he will benefit from that. Like I think he'll be, it, it made for what my two cents are worth, I think he'll be fine as long as he remembers that he is now representing everyone and not just giving his own opinions if if he doesn't moderate the um, sharpness of some of his opinions expressed quite reasonably in in the sense that he had every right to it when he was the prince of wales uh, particularly in areas of environment and so on when people are suffering terribly from increasing prices of gasoline and home fuel and so on If, if he if he Plays it carefully and diplomatically in that area. I think he'll be fine. He'll be very conscientious. He'll work hard. Uh, he's a he's a very agreeable personality. He's an intelligent man. I think I think it'll be fine. But he, I, I just hope he doesn't backslide and forget himself and say things that are bound to offend at least half the people.
0: Yeah, and fair enough. I mean, he's had to wait a while. Um, and so, as you say, it's understandable for a man to have opinions about things. And and in some quarters, having the conventional opinion on global warming or whatever he's talking about, it almost seems apolitical, although it's not. It's never apolitical. No, no
1: but look, he's been telling us for 30 years that we had 10 years yeah. of the world, you know, Venice would be underwater. He said a lot of harebrained things, yeah. but so did a lot of people. Yeah. It doesn't matter as long as he doesn't repeat them right.
0: now. Right, right. I hope you're right. And I i think you're right if he is no longer well i'm a prince but if he's a, a king for everyone then then hopefully he'll leave that behind him um and how about the, the generation behind him i i understand that william will be the new um prince of wales i understand uh,
1: i i don't i think he's now as of today i think he's the duke of cornwall but okay i i the prince of wales it's a formal investiture in deference to the welsh you know but i think that can't be far off right
0: yeah. And you know what? He gives me a little bit of hope too. Yeah, well, uh, he
1: seems to be. A, look, I don't know. I've never met him, but he seems to be a good, reasonable, nice guy. Yeah. I mean, you you don't need uh, Disraeli or Churchill or Thatcher as the monarch. You yeah. need you need someone like the late Queen or or, or George the Sixth.
0: Well, speaking of, uh, I mean, Disraeli was the prime minister. Of course, uh, there is a new prime minister in the UK who I think was the fifteenth prime minister to serve under...
1: That is queen right, but Lister. she also knew a number of the previous ones. She, course, right. she knew Mr. Attlee, right. who was leader of the opposition when she became queen. She knew Mr. Chamberlain. She knew Mr. Baldwin. So, right. so yes, yeah, the 15th, th- while she was queen.
0: Do you know anything about Liz Truss? I don't yes, know much yeah, about I do,
1: her. I do, I do. I, and I had dinner with her a few years ago. Uh, look, I, I, um, I think she's off to a brilliant start. She She's as stylishly... She's quite different from what we've seen. You know, she's got, you know, the, the British are quite perceptive in matters of socioeconomic origin, you know, and, and she's got an accent that, that is um, a, a lower socioeconomic echelon of the middle class than Mrs. Thatcher's, Lady Thatcher's. Uh, You know, she's got a bit of a working class accent. She went to a state school, but to Oxford University. Just slightly colorful, romantic history, not scandalous, but colorful and the people like that. And and I think she's very politically astute. I mean, she's only in her 40s. She's in that great office. And and she she stood for the leadership of her party. First of all, she did not double-cross Boris, which puts her in a minority in the former government and is a great credit to
0: her. And maybe one of the reasons she won, by the way.
1: Could well be. And secondly, um, she ran on a straight Thatcher platform. Even before she was invested by the late Queen uh, with, with the seals of office, she... She rolled back the anti-fracking rules. Yeah, so I, which shows I mean, one of Boris's few real failings in policy terms. I think was he he went full metal jacket for the for the the more draconian version of the green terror, and she's yeah. saying we're not having any of that.
0: That was that was hard to do, or look. It looked hard to do because all the polite people. The fancy people were against it, but when you've got the kind of energy prices skyrocketing there, she knew where the real people. Oh yeah, were. that, and, uh, that, and that the, was our test. It, it, and,
1: it's much worse there than it is here. Well, oh, you know? by far.
0: Yeah. You know, in a way, it reminded me of that key moment for Reagan when he said to the air traffic controllers who went on a wildcat illegal mm-hmm. strike, he said, "You go back to work, or I'm going to bring in the military air traffic." And, and they they said, "Oh, he's he's going to blink." Bluffing, no, he right? didn't. He sacked and, and, them all, and they, and that. And,
1: was, and, then, and then he said, "I didn't fire them;
0: they quit." Yeah, and. <laughs> <laughs> And that moment was a test. And and even I understood later, I think it was in uh, John O'Sullivan's book, that that, that that matter was perceived by the Soviets. Oh, we have a different man on our hands than Jimmy Carter. It wasn't just about air traffic control. It was, does he mean what he says? And when Liz Truss, one of her very first things, says, I'm going to unban fracking, which was like an untouchable third rail of environmentalism, that says the woman is not to be trifled with.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. No, and and she's capping the uh, the... Gasoline bill, too, cost you know, cost of a tank of petrol, as they call it. And, you know, that can be hazardous. You know, oh. you, you can end up having the taxpayers pay quite a bill for that. Yeah. But but uh, I mean, she's doing what needs to be done, I think. Uh, yeah. And and uh, again, like, you know, I think we all wish an incoming prime minister in any country. Best of luck.
0: Yeah well these are interesting days it's uh yep. let me ask you i mean I, I don't want to pry but i know you because you spent so much time over there and you operated in no, high I'm circles i'm still a member
1: of their parliament
0: are there any anecdotes that you i mean you told us the one about you know she's seeing you in your uh, winter costume yeah, in the yeah. in the summer and and the little she, she, banter
1: she she was the colonel in chief. she was a more impressive looking colonel than i was
0: <laughs> do you have any other uh, reminiscences like that because that's a great story um uh, yeah
1: I, I, I she said some uh, she said some very amusing things if she was confident of, of the discretion of the people she was talking to um she uh, I, uh but i unfa- some of them I, it would be it, i would be violating the Fair discretion enough. she she respected in me if i said them but uh, um when General de Gaulle made a state visit to Britain in 1960, they pulled out all the stops for him. The, the Queen m- met him. And, and she spoke French. Yes, yes, she did. And and uh, Alba spoke French to her French-Canadian prime ministers here, Mr. Saint-Laurent, Mr. Trudeau, b- both Mr. Trudeaus, and, um, uh, and Chrétien. And and she, um, uh, sh- she was chatting with him, and, and the... Uh, I can't. It's hard to render this as humorously as she said it, but there was a discussion about whether he'd come by cross-channel on a ship and then by train, or come by air. And he insisted on coming by air. And anyway, he. She had a sort of funny way of saying to him, "You know, Mon General, we know, of course, of your." immense powers and capabilities. But we didn't know that you could control the weather, too, you know, because <laughs> I mean, he, he they'd said it could be stormy weather sort of oh, rubbish. I'm taking the plane." you know, I mean, to go would be concerned with turbulence in the air, yeah. but but I'm not doing it justice. The way she said it was quite amusing. And mm-hmm. and he responded to it in a, in, in a way that showed that um, I, I'm uh, i i I could say a few other things but they they would offend people who are alive
0: fair enough i won't uh, i won't press you well listen it's great to catch up with you and um it'll be interesting to see uh what changes there are if anything part of the grand bargain of a constitutional monarchy is that the power is in reserve it's never you know it's it's that it like a mountain, it's in the background, yeah. and you never need to call on the mountain if everything's fine. And in ninety six years, I guess it was fine enough.
1: It, within the UK, there were certainly problems in what is now the Commonwealth. Uh, but even in the UK, there, there, look, there were, there were some serious problems at times. But, 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 you can't avoid that. Look, I think some monarchs get a long way because of their style edward the seventh for example and and i think charles may be in that category you know he dresses very well and he's he's a and he's interested in architecture and design mm-hmm. in a way that i don't think her mother was especially right. and, and 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 he could build on that i think and um uh and i, I, I he'll have a style that will be different but i think he'll be fine i i i don't mean that in the condescending way i'm one of his subjects i i think But I I have confidence that he will do well.
0: All right. Well, from your mouth to God's ears. There you have it. Conrad Black talking about the passing of the torch from Queen Elizabeth to King Charles. Stay with us. My final thoughts are next. What a week. You know, of course, we are subjects of the Queen. Sometimes we forget that she was the Queen of Canada. If you doubt it, look at your passport, your stamps. Your dollar bills, or or dollar, I guess we don't have any dollar bills anymore. Um, It'll be a while to get used to, but um, the whole thing about the monarchy is its continuity, its permanence. So hopefully, King Charles will be a great king. I mean, we're counting on it. It's a personification of the promise of our Constitution. That's it for today. I hope uh, you enjoyed our week's coverage. We're going to be in Ottawa for the decision in the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race. It's going to be very interesting. We're going to have live streams from there. I'll be there with a bit of a team. And, um, you know, the battle never stops. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom.
2: Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II.
3: After the news broke about Queen Elizabeth II's death at age 96, one of the questions that keeps coming up is, what now happens now that the Queen is dead? This video is intended for people who don't know the Protocol, or Operation London Bridge, as it's called also referred to as D-Day, after the Queen's passing, and what happens next. So to begin, what is Operation London Bridge? Well, this is a code phrase known as London Bridge is down, and this is used to when the Queen, Elizabeth II, dies. It is a complete periodic plan that details her state funeral. And this plan was actually made as early as the 1960s and has had changes and various updates throughout the decades. As the Queen passed on the 8th of September 2022, D-Day, as it's called, begins on the 9th of September, where Charles and Camilla will return from Balmora Castle to London where the king will make a televised address to the nation and pay tribute to the queen and this ceremony will last 10 days after the first day of d-day the coming days after will be referred as plus the number of days that have passed since her death On the first day, there will be a meeting of the Accession Council at 10 o'clock in the morning. This will include senior government figures and members of the Privy Council, as Charles will be proclaimed or crowned king. Normal parliamentary business will suspend, and members of parliament will meet and give tributes in the House of Commons. On day two of D-Day, the Queen's coffin will be brought to Buckingham Palace. Now, the Queen died in Balmoral Castle, which is up in Scotland. So her body will be taken to London by train. And if this isn't possible, the coffin will travel by plane. On day three the new King Charles will start a tour of the UK and his first stop will be up in Scotland to visit the Scottish Parliament and attend services there and in Edinburgh. Next will be Northern Ireland and whilst Charles is starting his tour rehearsals will commence for the procession of the Queen's Coffin from Buckingham Palace to Westminster. On D-Day 5 a service will take place at Westminster Hall where the Queen will lie in state for three whole days. Members of the public will be able to view the Queen's Coffin which will lie in the centre of the Westminster Hall. On D-Day 7, Charles will then visit Wales and visit the Welsh Parliament. D-Day 8 and 9 will be the days leading up to the final day, D-Day 10, which is the lead-up to the funeral, where it's projected that hundreds of thousands of people will be in the capital, London. And finally, D-Day 10, the state funeral for the Queen will take place at Westminster Abbey, where this will be broadcasted around the world and a two-minute silence will be held across the country. And finally, after the funeral service ends, the Queen will be buried in the King George VI Memorial Chapel over at Windsor Castle.
0: Bug.